Hello there. So let's continue with chapter 6 sub chapters again. A constant persecution. At the age of 21, I lived in a thatched hut on a bank of the Ganges 5 miles from Rishikesh. Because I lived alone, many people thought I was a great sage. If you isolate yourself, wear funny garb, have some scriptures near you, even though you never study them, and ignore everyone who comes to see you, then people conclude that you must be a great Swami. People would arrive to see me all day long. I did not even have time to do my practices. From morning till evening, they would bow before me and offer flowers, fruit or money. For a while, I exulted in it. But slowly it began to repel me. I thought, what is all this? It's a sheer waste of time. I started getting angry with visitors. The people reacted. How is it possible for a Swami to get angry? He is just pretending to be angry to avoid us. And they came in even greater numbers. That really irritated me. I completely lost my calm and balance and started calling visitors bad names. But they would respond, Sir, your bad names are like flowers for us. They are blessings. I had to run away from that place, I thought to myself. I still have not conquered my anger. This happens to many renunciates. They are constantly disturbed and distracted by visitors. A Swami must learn not to create attraction and not to live in such a place that is, that his practice is interrupted. A Swami's life is a constant persecution. People believe he is high above any ordinary human being. In India, Swami means one who is all-powerful, a healer, a preacher, a doctor and much more. A Swami is put in such a difficult situation that it would arrive, that it would drive an ordinary person crazy. People do not realize that some Swamis are still beginners on the path, that others have trodden the path a bit and that only very few have attained the goal. This lack of differentiation creates expectations which confuse both the people and the Swamis. It is not easy to extricate oneself from this confusion. Whenever I was truthful in telling people I, I am still practicing, there is nothing to share. Please leave me alone. They would interpret these words in whatever way suited them and come to me more and more. When I lived far in the woods, I was still disturbed. Sometimes I became fed up with this Swamihood. It is not necessary for one to wear the garb of a renunciate to attain enlightenment. What actually matters is the constant spiritual sadhana of disciplining mind, action and speech. How wonderful it is to be a Swami, but how difficult it is to be a real one. Living on a Mount of Pebbles If you are a seeker after enlightenment, 
doing your practice and people repeatedly come and disturb you, you will not be able to complete your practice successfully. Yet, in India, it is a custom that if you are a Swami, you have to answer the questions of all those who come to you. Many people think that Swamis have the remedies for all the ills of life. Such people sometimes benefit from this belief and are healed. The result is likely to be exaggerated stories and the acceptance of a beginner as an accomplished healer. This poor creature cannot continue his practice and forgets his goals. He wastes his time and life remaining a Swami but unrealized. One of the best ways to escape from such problems is to remain in disguise and to do one's sadhana. There are many mystics who are really great in their actual life but pretend to be imbalanced so that they are not disturbed. I know of one instance where people kept bringing food and money to a Swami. He did not want them to do this because they kept disturbing him. So he made a sign which said, Anybody who loves me will bring me only a pebble. People concluded that the Swami loved pebbles. And each day, many people would bring him pebbles. One pebble, two pebbles, three pebbles. They collected pebbles from the road according to their whims. After some time, there was a veritable mount of pebbles and the Swami lived on top of that. People started calling him Kankariya Baba, which means a Swami of pebbles. This helped him to remain aloof. Then the Swami started to speak a language which nobody understood. If anybody came to see him, he would say, Do, 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 do. He did the same thing to me. So I went to him at night and when he was all alone and he explained, since people disturb me, I have learned a new language and no one can converse with me. This Swami taught me always remain in such a way as not to allow the people of the world to disturb me. A human being has many personalities because the ego has many faces. Some of them we can detect and analyze, but many remain unknown to us. The Swami concluded that the world actually worships the ego in the name of God. When the lower ego is made aware of the, that self-existent reality which stands behind it, then it starts turning inwards. Such an ego is called higher ego. So, when the lower ego is made aware of that self-existent reality which stands behind it, then it starts turning inwards. Such an ego is called higher ego. Higher ego is helpful but lower ego makes one miserable. Temptations on the path. I went to see a Swami who told me the following story to teach me about temptations on the path of self-realization. A young man 
took vows of renunciation and became a swami his master told him to avoid three things gold woman and fame one day the swami was crossing a river and noticed that part of the river bank had been washed away then he saw that some big jars full of gold coins had been uncovered he thought i don't need it because i have renounced the world but if i build a temple that will be good so he went to some builders showed them what he had found and asked them to build a temple they said to one another why should a swami have so much money let's throw him in the river and distribute the money amongst ourselves he was almost drowned but by the grace of god he was able to save himself he thereupon determined with finality no matter what happens no money he went far into the woods when anybody came to see him he said stop there please if you have any money put it aside before you come closer a woman came and he ordered don't come near me she said sir i will leave only i will only leave food here every day and go away but each day she came slightly closer to him the swami had confidence that she was a good person he thought she really wants to look after me and wants me to enlighten her one day she brought a cat to keep him company but the cat would not eat the food which had been prepared for the swami he requested i need some milk for the cat each day she brought a cow he asked who will look after this cow she asked may i look after it and he agreed she looked after the swami more and more eventually they began to live together and the woman bore him a child one day the swami was taking care of the child when another swami came along and said what has happened to you the swami began to weep when he realized how much he had again become entangled with the world he he left and went even deeper into the forest he practiced very sincerely and after some years acquired some siddhis pass one day a man from a nearby village sought him out he bowed and said swami ji you are so kind and such a great sage i am very poor my children do not have enough to eat please help me swami ji said take one hair from my beard put it in your cupboard and tomorrow your cupboard will be full of money but don't tell anyone about it when he returned to his home that man naturally revealed the secret to his wife and she to many others soon the news had traveled far and wide hundreds of people thronged to the swami to pull a hair from his beard his face was sore and bleeding once again he had to go away and begin his practice anew but he had learned a valuable lesson 
he now knew the consequences of becoming involved with gold, woman and fame. The Swami who told the story to me said, this is a lesson which you should never forget. Let this story be a lesson to you and relate it to all young Swamis who you meet on the path. Should I get married? When I was in Uttar Pradesh, a northern state of India, people would come to visit me in the evenings and I would give discourses on the Upanishads. One day, a girl who had her master's degree in English literature asked me to grant her an interview. She began by asserting that I had been her spouse in a previous life. She talked for two hours and led me to a state where I agreed that it could have been possible. I had never had such a personal audience with anyone for such a long time before. She tried to persuade me that we should get married in this life as well. Later, I talked with her mother who also supported her imagination. What that girl said was so enticing and I was so naive that I started brooding on what it would be like to live with her. I told her that if my master would permit me to get married, it was all right with me. This was the only time in my life when I considered living with someone, though I was not considering leaving my spiritual path. This girl was from a well-known family. Many of her brothers, cousins and other relatives held high government positions. They pressed me to marry her. For one year, I was strongly influenced by my emotions. It was a bad period. I felt frustrated and unfulfilled but I was very much influenced by the girl and her family and did not know what to do. The experience helped me to see how a student on the path of spirituality who is committed to the path of renunciation can be disturbed and distracted. Many obstacles appear on the path, but I am convinced that the grace of the master and the grace of God lead the student to overcome these obstructions. Finally, I went to my master and left the decision with him. He never controlled my life but would advise me when I needed it. After some resistance and discussion, I always ended up following his advice. My master said, you have a task and you have not completed it yet. Having examined and compared worldly companionship and spiritual attainments and deciding to follow the path of renunciation, you are now letting yourself to be tempted back into the world. If you persist and remain within the influence of your current atmosphere, it will take several lifetimes for you to come back to the path. The decision was left to me. But... After listening to my master, I decided to break this tie and go back to the path of renunciation. There are two well-known paths, the path of renunciation 
and the path of action in the world. My path was the path of renunciation. One should not compare paths and think one superior and the other inferior. I certainly do not condemn the path which involves living and working in the world while having a family. That path furnishes the means of living but is also time consuming. In the path of renunciation, there is ample time for spiritual practices but limited means like food, shelter and clothing. The renunciate must depend on the householder for fulfilling such needs. It is not important which path one follows. What is important is the honesty, sincerity, truthfulness and faithfulness which one has in either path. This particular incident brought some humiliation into my life. Because people put swamis and yogis on high pedestals and look upon them as demigods. In India, a swami is expected to live apart from society without worldly possessions and without any worldly preoccupations. I have met many on the path who live hypocritically because of such expectations. I have heard Western psychologists say that renunciation and especially celibacy is ascetic, ascetic insanity. I leave it to each individual to choose for himself. But it is important to mention here that hypocrisy is a great obstacle. Those who observe celibacy do indeed become abnormal if they do not transform their inner personalities. Those who do not have control over the primitive urges should not follow the path of renunciation. The drives for food, sex, sleep and self-preservation are powerful urges. Each has very strong impact and influence on human life and behavior. Why should there be such a taboo on sex only? In yoga, yoga science, all the urges are channeled and directed towards spiritual development. Those who cannot control and sublimate these drives should live in the world and experience their fulfillment in a regulated way. They can follow the path of tantra rather than renunciation. They can transform the fulfillment of these drives into spiritual experiences. There is much confusion created by renunciates who impose rigid discipline on their students. This often makes the students dishonest and hypocritical. Is such discipline necessary? Conflict within and without are the signs and symptoms which clearly indicate that one is not on the path of spirituality. That's it for today. Thanks for listening.